You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. I'm here today with Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, who is a professor of politics at New York University, also has a, a firm called Selectors LLC, which puts his theory into practice, both in terms of making predictions and consulting and advising decision makers. And he's also the author of many books. I've got a couple here that I've read, the most recent of which is this one called The Invention of Power, Popes, Kings, and the Birth of the West, which is a long-form foray into history, which was, I think, foreshadowed by the last chapter of the Predictioner's Game, using the logic of brazen self-interest to see and shape the future. And of course, you are the co-author of this book here, The Dictator's Handbook, which is kind of a updated version of Machiavelli's Prince. Welcome, Bruce. Not a bad description of The Dictator's Handbook. <laughs> oh, hell. I, I don't know if any, have you sold any copies to any dictators lately? I feel like it was less about advising dictators and more about advising the folks who might be interested in understanding them and maybe constraining them in some way. But I want to sort of kick off just by asking you, look, you're in the field of political science and political science itself as a term is kind of unusual, right? Because it combines a bunch of different perspectives, many of which are not what we might consider scientific. You know, you really emphasize the scientific aspect of political science. And this means to kind of step away from kind of normativity, step away a bit from judgment, step a bit away from too much in the way of psychology, of course, is a big part of it. You know, you really try to design models which enable you to understand the specific decision makers and circumstances of a given political situation. Why do you have to continually emphasize the scientific aspects of political science? Why is it that you seem to be swimming upstream in the field of political science? Drowning upstream might be <laughs> more like it, but actually uh, there's now a significant constituency of people doing science about politics. Why? Well, why is pretty straightforward. I want to understand how the political world works. Just as a chemist wants to understand how elements work, how they combine, or a physicist wants to understand how particles interact, I want to understand how people interact. And one of the unfortunate features of the body of political science that is not science-oriented is if you want to improve the way the world works from whatever lights you have as to what is improvement, you can't do that without understanding what makes it come out the way it is coming out so that you can figure out how to incentivize by rewarding or punishing people to behave differently. That requires science. It doesn't require opinion. It doesn't require speculation. It doesn't require partisanship. Those are all important as a citizen. As a researcher, those really should have no place. It should just be about what is the logic and what is the evidence behind the phenomenon of interest. Now, you mentioned that you began your career in area studies. You were sort of a South Asian expert. And in one of your books, you kind of 
criticized the kind of overemphasis of that kind of contextual understanding, right? So in the sense that um, if someone is trying to understand a regional conflict, they will consult with a regional expert. And of course, you know, there will be specifics of the situation, but I think you're, you're emphasizing that, um, you know, there are general rules and, and general principles and general uh, models, which, you know, are probably underinvested in. And, and, uh, and maybe we could come to better understandings if you invested more in those more, more generalist approaches and a little bit less in the more uh, kind of detailed con- contextual approaches. C- can you talk about what is the proper balance there? You know, there are general rules and, and general principles and general models, which, you know, are probably underinvested in. And maybe we could come to better understandings if you invested more in those more generalist approaches and a little bit less in the more detailed contextual approaches. Can you talk about what is the proper balance there? I did indeed start as a South Asianist, so I, I have a great appreciation for what area specialty people bring to the table. A lot of, particularly in my day, people who did area studies tended not also to learn the general principles that we now know a lot about in the context of politics. Much of that wasn't known when I was in school. Modern area specialists do learn a lot about the general principles of politics and apply them to their area. So they bring a tremendous amount to the table because what they're trying to do is bring the nuance of the local situation into the context of the general theoretical understanding. That's fantastic. Area studies that think that the name of the country is an explanatory variable, which really old area studies, is deeply problematic. I like to say to my students, can you imagine a chemist saying that how hydrogen and oxygen combine controlling for atmospheric pressure differs in China than in the United States? It's absurd. There's no reason to think that people in the political arena behave differently in India or China or Chad or Russia Uh, than in the United States. What differs is what they want. And once you have an understanding of what they want, the tools of understanding how people try to convert their wants into outcomes is the same process, whether you're looking at one part of the world or another, or whether you're looking at the world a thousand years ago or today. That doesn't change. Historians, I think, would probably challenge that notion, right? You decided to write a pretty big book on history. And I think in history, there's this tension between, I mean, historians define themselves typically as, you know, I'm a German historian or I'm an English historian or I'm a, you know, African historian. And they're often very skeptical of kind of social scientific approaches, which generalize away from context too much. And I think at the beginning of your book, your new book, the invention of power, you do have a disclaimer. You say, you know, you're not an historian, but, you know, how is it that somebody who's not an historian can come in and see something which seems to be kind of in plain sight, but is kind of missed by the people who are on the ground? You know, again, is there a proper kind of balance? Are these compliments? How do we decide what the appropriate level of investment should be in the social scientific approach that's more general and this contextual, more historical approach, which is more specific. And do we get it right? Like institutionally, 
or do you have an institutional bias that kind of used the investment in the wrong ways? Well, I think we do skew the investment in the wrong way. Historians are interested in answering or solving a different puzzle from the puzzles that somebody like me is interested in solving, as I understand it as a non-historian. Historians want to understand what happened. I want to understand what didn't happen. I want to understand why this thing was chosen instead of a dozen other things that could have been chosen, whereas historians tend to, from my reading of history, I read a lot of history, tend to think of events as path-dependent, whatever happened yesterday drives what happens today and so on, or as important things to understand, but random is not the right word, but unregulated. And I think of things as, to use a little bit of jargon, as endogenous. That is, what happens is the strategic consequence of looking ahead and thinking about the consequences of doing this or doing that. So as a historian once said to me, he spends about 95% of his time thinking about and trying to understand what happened. And I spend, according to him, 95% of my time thinking about what didn't happen. And you know, in some sense, the 95 is too high, but that's what people who do game theory do. They want to understand why other choices weren't made. So as you say, in plain sight, I'm looking at the origin of what people call Western exceptionalism, and I'm providing a game theoretic not a technical one in this book, but a game-theoretic account and an analysis of how Western exceptionalism grows out of the changed incentives produced by a really obscure agreement, the Concordat of Worms in 1122. And as you say, it's out there in plain sight, but historians don't think about it in the way that a game theorist does. In fact, I was originally motivated to study this subject and to write this book about 25 years ago. So I did spend a lot of time reading history because I had read a biography of King Philip Augustus of France. He was king from 1179 to 1223. And there's a passage, it's a wonderful book by John Baldwin, is a passage in which he says that Philip, like his father before him, always deferred to the choices of the Pope and Church in picking bishops. Not that the Church had been that good to him, but because God had been so good to him in making him a king that he thought he should defer. So he never rejected a bishop that was nominated by the Church in his time. And I read that passage as somebody who thinks strategically about bargaining and so forth. That cannot be an equilibrium. So I sat down and I began to research what would be the equilibrium under the conditions of the time. And was that in fact the equilibrium, which was that in poor dioceses, the church would nominate bishops aligned with the church and the king would say yes, because the cost of ticking off the pope or the church wasn't worth it for a diocese that wasn't gonna produce much money. In a wealthier diocese, it did pay to tick off the Pope or the Church. So the Church, instead, understanding that, nominated bishops who were aligned with 
the secular ruler, with the king or duke, whomever it may have been. So, of course, the king didn't say no to that person because that person was going to be in the lay leader's pocket. And if the diocese or set of dioceses that a king controlled got really wealthy, then the kings had gained so much bargaining leverage, they no longer needed to trade money to the church for bishops who would follow the policies they wanted. They could basically overthrow the influence of the church through, for example, the Avignon papacy in 1309 in France, or the Protestant Reformation in Northern Europe, England's a little different, starting with Martin Luther in 1517. So that way of thinking is not a historian's way of thinking. And in an earlier draft of the book, the opening sentence of the preface was, this is a book about history, but it's not a history book. I had too many words, so I cut it. But that's the point. It's a book about strategic reasoning and how that shaped differences in modern Europe, rather than this happened and this day and then that happened and then something else happened. It's why did these things happen? Why did they happen differently, for example, in Northern Europe from in Southern Europe? Why is Southern Europe today substantially poorer than Northern Europe today when, if you go back before the Concordat of Worms, Southern Europe was wealthier. Well, the answer is in the incentives of the Concordat. Right. And so the tool that you use is game theory. And you use it not only to kind of analyze the past, but also to kind of make predictions about the future. And so I was wondering if you could tell us just a bit about why this is such a powerful tool. And more generally, like, why is it so powerful to use models? One of the things that I really liked about your book, I think it was in the Predictioners game, where you said the value of a good model is when the model tells you something that you would not have intuited immediately. That's the benefit of a really good model. And you say, check your intuition at the door. Now, obviously, I think there's a little bit of exaggeration there because, you know, your intuition is what kind of helps to kind of think these models through. But what does it mean to do good modeling? And why is game theory such a powerful tool when you're modeling outcomes that have already happened as well as ones that are about to happen. So let me start with why game theory is such a good tool. People think about their own well-being. They're interested in making themselves and their families so forth better off. They understand that rivals, competitors are thinking exactly the same thing about themselves. So you have to figure out what should I do and how will people competing with me react to what I do? Will I be worse off if I do what I really want? Or will I be better off by doing what I really want or doing something else? Well, that's the domain of game theory. It is how do entities, in this case people, interact strategically to illustrate that. I've given a lot of talks to physicists, especially after the Cold War ended, and a lot of physicists found themselves, especially those who made nuclear weapons, they needed a new job. So they thought, well, they're really smart people and they're going to solve the problems of war and peace and so forth. And they would invite me, since I study war and peace, they would invite me to give talks. I always started the talk the same way. The average physicist has a much higher IQ than the average political scientist. So we might wonder why it is that I have never observed a physicist to say something really smart about social phenomena. 
And the answer is pretty straightforward. It's in the training. Physicists are trained to study how particles interact. The particles are not strategic. They collide randomly. Social scientists study how people interact strategically. So if I take an eraser and I throw it at a blackboard, no molecules rearrange until the eraser crashes into the blackboard. But if I were to grab you and throw you at a blackboard, there'd be a lot of rearranging of molecules immediately. I'd probably wind up knocked down with a bloody nose or whatever. Game theory is the way to study that. We don't have another tool for studying how people interact strategically. And because that is, it seems, how people behave, game theory, of course, looking mathematically complex is a great simplification of the high-level calculations that people make, it should work both when we look retrospectively at how the world worked in the past, and it should work in prediction if we have good data about what people want today and how much influence they could exert, how important the question is to them, and so forth. And we have a dynamic game theory model that asks how do the values that we start with change over time as a consequence of how the players have interacted with each other strategically in an uncertain environment. Of course, everything about the future is filled with uncertainty. And it turns out it works really well in projecting the future on, at least in the problems I study, which are problems where there's a possibility of a negotiated or compromised outcome, and there's the possibility of the use of coercive pressure, the use of force, up to the mutual use of force leading to war. It is the right tool for thinking about those things. Studying the individual doesn't solve it. Studying culture doesn't solve it. Studying history doesn't solve it. Another point I like to make to my students, if you walk in on a chess game where several moves have already been made and you're told, okay, it's Black's move, the thing you think about if you play chess is what's the next best move to make not how did the board get to the position it's in. However history may have caused the quality of play and so forth that produced the current situation, the table is set. We can't undo history. It's a given. Now we have to worry about what are the strategic moves from this point forward. Well, so one of the critiques of game theory is that at least in its kind of most popular form, it assumes rationality. It assumes perfect foresight. It assumes that everyone has complete information. It makes all these assumptions, right? No, what, what you said is not right. Game theory assumes rationality. That's right. It does not assume perfect foresight, and it does not assume no uncertainty. That's game theory right. 60 years ago. Game theory today, so we have Nobel Prizes that have been awarded for solving games, for example, where I think we're playing a different game than you think we're playing. So there's uncertainty about what are the available moves, what are the payoffs. That's John Harsanyi solved that problem in the 1960s and won a Nobel Prize for it. Game theory today, my forecasting model, for example, is solving for something called perfect Bayesian equilibrium. Every player has several dimensions of uncertainty about each other player. They're not sure about what the other players want. 
They're not sure about the previous moves of every player, and they're not seeking perfect information because it's not rational to seek out perfect information. Once the cost of the next piece of information exceeds the expected benefit, it's not worth looking for it. Again, I tell my students, when you write a paper for a course, you don't want to write the absolutely best paper that you ever can write because you'll never finish. You want to write the best paper up to the limit that you have a constraint on how much time you have and you have a constraint to stop researching the problem when the cost of the search is exceeding the marginal gains. So you want to write a good paper. So in your models, you presumably incorporate not only uncertainty, but also perhaps elements of irrationality? All that rationality requires is that I can look at choices and I can say, well, I like this one better than that one. And I, if I like this one better than that one, and I like that one better than another, I like this one better than that other. That's minimal rationality. It merely is saying, I do what I believe is in my best interest. I may be wrong because I'm operating under uncertainty. I might be Vladimir Putin and think that Ukrainians want to be Russian and they'll be coming out with flowers to greet us. I might be wrong, like Vladimir Putin, and think, well, the Europeans aren't going to pay more for gasoline, so they're not going to impose heavy sanctions on me. And, you know, before the fact, he might, that may be what he believed. It was perfectly credible for him to believe that. It turns out he's wrong. Rationality doesn't require that you're right. It just requires that your actions are motivated by your belief about what are the things that you should do now. Well, maybe we can do a case study because we've got this wonderful opportunity as we are speaking today. We are soon after the invasion of the Ukraine. Do you think that Putin has read your book, The, the Dictator's uh, Handbook? You know, maybe you can use uh, him as, as kind of an illustration of your model where you have the nominal selectorate and the real selectorate and you have the winning coalition. How does Putin maintain his power? How do dictators maintain their power? So did he read the book? Well, there is a Russian translation. <laughs> I don't know if he's read it. He doesn't need to. He understands how to be a dictator. How do dictators maintain their power? So we can think of any society, any organization, as made up of people who have no say, people who have a nominal say in picking leaders, and people whose support is actually essential to bring somebody to power. So in Russia, there's universal adult suffrage. Everybody gets to vote, but it's the folks who count the votes that really make a difference. Pretty much the outcome is decided before the folks vote. So there's this winning coalition of people, the oligarchs, key generals and so forth around Putin, who are essential. There's a synergistic relationship between them and him. What do leaders do? Well, in my way of thinking, leaders fundamentally do three things. They do other things, of course, but fundamentally three things. They raise revenue, and they spend some of that revenue on things that benefit all of society national security, healthcare, education, so forth. They spend some of that revenue on things that just benefit their inner circle, 
what economists call private mm-hmm. goods. And whatever money is left over after taking care to make sure that your key supporters aren't tempted away by a rival who can pay them more, after that's taken care of, whatever is left over, that's your discretionary money. Putin did not reconstruct, for example, the Russian defense budget to wage this war. This was his discretionary money. He chose that this is how the money will be spent. Dictators depend on very few people to keep them in power, so they have to keep those people sufficiently happy that they don't find a rival who could do better by them. Putin has been doing that. That's why his inner circle is filled with billionaires. They're being kept happy. Now, he may be facing a serious problem over the next few months because if the sanctions stick, if the West doesn't blink first, if if the sanctions remain in force for a long time, then his inner circle is going to be really suffering financially. They're not going to be getting lots of goodies from Vladimir Putin. So they may look around for somebody who would be more pleasing to the West so the West would lift the sanctions. Not that it wouldn't necessarily, it might be another dictator, but not a dictator who's trying to occupy territories that aren't his or hers. When you depend on more people to keep you in power, you are forced by the logic to have to spend more money on public goods because it just gets too expensive to bribe millions of people instead of hundreds or a few thousand. So a Kim Jong-un basically buys the support of key generals, key civil servants, key family members, and that's all he needs. A British prime minister has to keep millions of people happy. So he's Mm -hmm. got to produce public goods because it's just too costly to do it with bribes. Although there are bribes. When the Republicans are in office in the United States, they tend to realign the tax system to take money from people who vote against them, Democrats, and give that money to people who vote for them, who are disproportionately wealthier, Republicans. And when the Democrats are in office, they do exactly the same thing, except the other way around. They try to take money from the people who vote against them, Republicans, by raising marginal income taxes on wealthier people, and they try to have more uh, social safety net, that is more support for more of the people who vote for them, on average, lower incomes than Republicans. So those are private goods, but they're much more subtle and much more limited than billions of dollars for an individual. So if you're a political engineer from on high and you're trying to figure out how to create something that was more democratic, how would you do this? Because it seems that a dictator is not going to voluntarily expand the circle of people that he needs in order to maintain his power. That's going to be very expensive. So he does everything in his power to keep that circle relatively small and relatively controllable. So when you go back and you look at the historical examples where kings kind of gave up their power by expanding this circle, it was usually done under duress. It wasn't something that king didn't wake up one day and say, wow, I think democracy sounds like a great idea. Let's do that in the morning, right? So what are the pressures that lead to the need to satisfy this larger 
circle. In graduate school, I studied this issue a lot. It's not something that's too foreign to me, but how would you approach this? And presumably if you had the ability to intervene externally, so the U.S. often is allegedly in the business of promoting democracy, at least when it's convenient, but it seems to do a terrible job of it. So let me answer that question first with the last piece of what you just said. Leaders in, in a country like the United States benefit greatly from the rhetoric of saying that they want to promote democracy. Actually, I, I did a study with a colleague on this very question a few years ago, looking at the change in governance after military interventions by democracies, military interventions by autocracies, and military interventions by the United Nations. The least promotion of democracy follows military intervention by democracies because the job of a democratic leader is to satisfy that winning coalition at home. And at the margin, that involves getting foreign policies that they like. Well, if you help to install a democratic government, that's great if it happens that the policy preferences of the voters in the other country are aligned with your country's interests. Mm -hmm. But if they're aligned against your country's interests, if it's, you know, death to America, you don't want to promote democracy. You want an autocrat who will comply with the policy desires in exchange, for example, for money, we call it foreign aid, from, from that, that your constituents want. So democracies, as a theoretical and an empirical matter, rarely promote democracy outside of places that have very similar values. Now, how do you get democracy to happen internally? So I'm going to give you three examples of how to do it. First, when a new autocrat, a leader has been overthrown or died, and a new prospective dictator comes to power, unless they were the blood relatives of the person who died, they typically don't know where the money is. And so they are at very high risk of being overthrown in their first year or so while they figure out who can they trust and where is the money. In order to avoid being overthrown, they emulate more democratic leaders. When a leader was new in office, there is an opportunity. They pretend to be reformers. You can lock them into that. When a leader is very old or if they're believed to be sick with a terminal illness, they have an incentive to liberalize their government because the burdens of a liberalized government from the leader's perspective won't fall on them. They're going to be dead. But it will avert a mass uprising. A way to avoid rebellion is to liberalize. If they face so severe an economic shock that they can't pay the inner circle, this is what many of us are hoping is true for Putin, if they face a severe, so severe an economic shock that they can't pay the inner circle, then they have two choices. They can purge people, shrink the inner circle so they need less money and survive, or they can reform to buy off. You know, they don't have to pay the individual so much because the coalition is getting much bigger. Expand that coalition and buy people off with better public policy. We have examples of both of those. We have lots of examples, of course, of purges. J.J. Uh, Rawlings, for example, in Ghana, many years ago, he was a successor to Kwame Nkrumah, 
bankrupted the country. Dictators often bankrupt their countries because they run very inefficient economies. Mm -hmm. And many of the people who were productive workers had fled Ghana, gone to Uganda, gone to Kenya and so forth to get jobs. J.J. Rawlings could no longer pay the military. The government wasn't generating enough revenue. So we introduced a competitive multi-party system. People came back. Like Louis XVI. Yeah, and it became, it is today, a democratic country. There are circumstances under which even a miserable dictator, to survive, needs to reform. And those can be engineered. The current sanctions in Russia may, if Europe and the United States sticks with them, I'm concerned about that because we've already seen the United States has been very reluctant to cut off Russian oil imports out of fear of raising prices. If we stick with the sanctions for months on end, that will accumulate. It will either provoke a mass uprising or in anticipation of a mass uprising, it will provoke a coup, either one which will be presumably an improvement over the current situation. So your view of American failure to build nations and install democracies is a little more cynical than mine, which I'm more likely to attribute it to a failure to understand political science and just simply ignorance with respect to you know how game theory operates, right? Let me tell you the problem with that account. Okay. So a person doesn't have to understand how game theory operates to behave as if they were a game theorist. And you can be ignorant for a while, but you observe outcomes. We've got a lot of history behind us. I don't want to get into what Bayes' rule is, but it's hard to sustain a belief in that ignorance for a really long time. You have to start looking at strategic incentives because... If you know that they're behaving in a foolish way, and I know they're behaving in a foolish way, and others know that, they surely know that. So either they're not learning or they're not behaving in a foolish way. Their interests are not what we would like to think they are. They're not, for example, in promoting democracy, except when the values of the electorate in the other country will be aligned with ours. When the Shah was overthrown by the Iranian revolution, the country is far from a democratic country, but it's a more democratic country than it was under the Shah. They do have competitive elections. It is certainly true that candidates are weeded out if the Ayatollahs, if the Supreme Council doesn't like them, but there's quite a bit of variation across the candidates. But we stopped giving them assistance. We stopped supporting them not because they became less democratic, but because their values became different from ours. When rulers have access to a relatively steady and easy source of of income, like oil or natural resources, then they don't really need to build out big coalitions, right? Well, that's right. It's much harder if you're resource rich, there's lots of money to pay off a small group of cronies. So if you're already democratic, and you discover oil or diamonds or whatever, then you're likely to stay democratic. Norway stayed democratic. England stayed democratic. But if you discover that when you're not democratic, it makes it a lot harder for you to become democratic because unlike the scenario where you face this huge economic shock, unless we switch from oil to some totally different energy, 
solar, whatever. Well, you've got a, a sure source of wealth. So you can take care of the cronies and you have no incentive to become democratic. Let's wrap up by just summarizing this argument in the invention of power. There's a split between Northern Europe and Southern Europe, and it really boils down to this split between secular and religious power. You can't summarize the book in three minutes, but are there lessons from that kind of division of power within those countries? What can we learn from that when it comes to helping to build democracies and prosperity today? Well, the last chapter of the book is exactly about how to apply what we learned in the book to the future. And there are things we can learn. So the essential feature of what happened in Europe is that the Concordat Treaty created regulated competition between massive centers of power, kings and the church, and separated them. So this regulated competition made it possible for each to flourish within the domain where it had comparative advantage and to not be in the way of the flourishment of the other. And so if we look around the world at places, for example, that have clear separation of church and state, we see more economic success, more political success than in places that don't. If we look at places that foster competition but not monopoly, we see people have better lives. And those are things that the Concordat did, in many ways, introduced. It was the incentives introduced in the Concordat that created what we think of as this modern world of competition. So, yeah, there, there are great lessons. Even today, the wealthiest parts of Europe were the parts that signed the Concordat as opposed to those that didn't. Even if they were wealthy and didn't sign, they're much poorer today than if they were wealthy or poor and signed back then in, in 1122 or 1107 for other parts of it. Well, we're still living in the shadow of this brief period of time where these major decisions were made. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it and hope we'll talk again soon. Great. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.